0: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso. In a rare on-bank
1: hearing at the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, the Trump administration squared off against House Democrats over a crucial question masked in a fight over the subpoena of former White House counsel Don McGahn. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner at Carter & English. What's the basic issue the court's considering?
2: This is a high stakes, highly consequential decision that will likely draw the battle lines between Congress and the executive branch for years to come. And it really focuses on the crucial question of whether lawmakers can turn to the courts to enforce subpoenas aimed at exposing alleged wrongdoing in the executive branch.
1: So Trump's lawyers here, the Justice Department lawyers, argue that Don McGahn is absolutely immune to testifying. How
2: strong is that argument? The courts have never really directly addressed this issue, which is why this is so closely watched and will be such a consequential decision. In the past, while both sides the House of Representatives and the executive branch have gone to court and they have jousted with one another. What they've always done is reach some kind of negotiated settlement. And what really forced the settlement is the fact that the issue was unresolved and both sides feared what the D.C. Circuit might do if it actually had to answer this question. Now we're going to find out since both sides have dug in and there doesn't seem to be any ability to negotiate a resolution here.
1: Congress was challenged about other methods, using other methods to get McGahn's testimony. If they don't enforce the subpoena, what can Congress do?
2: Well, that's really the question here. The essential argument from the Trump administration is that this is basically a political question. It's something that is a fight between two political branches of the federal government, and the courts should not insert themselves into this argument. The lower court, the two-to-one decision by the D.C. Circuit, uh, which preceded this en banc hearing, which is taking place today, came down along those same lines, saying that they were feared that if they stepped in here to resolve this balance of power dispute, that it would open up the floodgates and the courts would be flooded with arguments between the legislative branch and the executive branch in future battle. What the court below said and what the executive branch has picked up on is the argument that there are other avenues of recourse for Congress if the administration refuses to cooperate in an investigation. The court noted, for example, that they could declare the witness in contempt, they could block funding for the White House. But the other side of the argument, the side of the argument that the House is arguing here, is that those Other avenues are really not realistic. At the end of the day, if the court decides that an executive branch official can simply ignore a congressional subpoena, it really gives Congress no ability to challenge that, no ability to force that testimony, and ultimately impairs their ability to oversee the executive branch functions and to ultimately hold the executive branch accountable if they believe there is some wrongdoing carried on in the White House.
1: If Congress were to hold Don McGahn in contempt of Congress, it doesn't have any power to enforce that, does it?
2: Well, in theory, the House could hold a witness in contempt and in rare cases even detain or jail an administration official. But that's something that as a practical matter is not likely to happen. And one of the questions that was asked by the panel today was that if that did occur, doesn't that place the court right back in the mix here if the House were to choose to theoretically address Don McGahn for failing to abide by the subpoena?
1: Didn't the court interfere in the Nixon case? Wasn't that an interference in the political process?
2: One of the arguments that are made by the House lawyers are that there was a con- congressional demand for information during the Watergate case, and it went up to the Supreme Court where the House Judiciary Committee was forcing President Nixon to turn over the tapes. That is something that ultimately led to, Nixon's resignation, and they are arguing that this shows that the courts can in fact step in here when the executive branch is simply ignoring a request for information from the House. The difference between the decision in the Nixon case, which simply forced Nixon to turn over tapes and to require witnesses to testify, is that witness testimony is more complex. It runs into questions as to what information can be requested of the witness. What areas can they be forced to testify about? So it's much more consequential, and that is the question that has never been faced before, and that's the question that's going to be decided by the full D.C. Court of Appeals in this hearing today.
1: It has been said by legal analysts that Congress has a better chance of winning with the full court than it did with a three-judge panel.
2: The political makeup of the full D.C. Court of Appeals leans to democratically appointed judges. So there's a seven to four balance between judges on the D.C. Court of Appeals who were appointed by Democratic presidents versus judges who were appointed by the bank, by Republican presidents. Add to that the fact that two of the four Republican appointees on the D.C. Court of Appeals have recused themselves from this case. Because they both served in capacities in the Trump administration. So it's effectively a seven to two majority for Democratically appointed appointed members of the DC Court of Appeals that's hearing this decision. And there's no question that the decision here will ultimately go up to the Supreme Court.
1: Thanks, Bob. That's Robert Mintz, a partner, at McCarter in English.
3: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork.
1: Across the country, there are challenges to governor's stay-at-home orders. Some have even reached state Supreme Courts. And Attorney General William Barr has U.S. attorneys on the lookout for cases to bring against the states. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Jennifer Rogers, who teaches at Columbia Law School. In Illinois, a judge ruled that the governor's stay-at-home order violated the liberty of a state lawmaker But in Pennsylvania, the state Supreme Court rejected a challenge to the governor's stay-at-home order. So how are these cases
5: being decided? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, of course, each judge is his or her own person, so they're making their own rulings. But there also can be differing legal authorities. There were a couple of bases for the Illinois temporary restraining order that was requested, and one of them was whether the Illinois Emergency Management Agency Act restricted the governor from extending his order. So, that's actually a legal question that turns on Illinois law. So, you could see how there might be some differences state to state, but the liberty interest argument that it's unconstitutional to keep people at home is largely going to be the same everywhere based on constitutional rights from the federal constitution. So, in that sense, the fact that judges might reach different results it doesn't make a lot of sense.
1: Is it a balancing test that the judges are supposed to do? So,
5: yes, it's always a balancing test uh, when you're talking about individual liberties. But the test they use depends on what the liberty is, the liberty interest is, and the class involved. So in Illinois, you have a white male lawmaker who said that his liberty interest is being impinged because he's forced to stay home. He's not part of any cognizable class, right? He's just like any other person. He's not saying, because I'm African-American or because I'm female or because I'm something like a farmer, I'm being told to stay home. So in that situation, the government doesn't have to do a lot to prove that they are not impinging on his liberty. Because he's not a member of a protected class. So you know, that's one of the reasons why I think the judge was wrong to say That his case would win in court. I just think that he hasn't identified a specific interest that that he's exercising that says that the government is, is discriminating against him. So I think he's likely to lose. and I think the judge in Illinois was wrong. Is the balance the freedom
1: of the person versus the
5: public safety? Is that the weighing that's being done? Ultimately, I mean, it's not quite that simple, but let's say, you know, you got to the merits of an argument where this lawmaker says, you said that everyone has to stay home and that violates my rights. Um, eventually, what you're going to be looking at is, you know, what interest does the government have in impinging on his liberty interests just like everyone else's? And so you're thinking about how serious is this threat? And I just think that right now where we are, and like, there's no question that governments have a very strong interest in ordering people to stay home to stem the rise of the virus. So in a year from now, let's say that the virus is under control, maybe there's a vaccine, maybe not, but it's largely under control. The economy is open, and yet there's one mayor somewhere who's saying everyone must stay home. You know, at that point, I think that that order would probably be unconstitutional because you know, the, the balancing of the liberty interests of the citizens it's going to be found to be greater than the need for them to stay home for the public health reasons. So, you know, it is a balancing test. That means that it's going to shift as the facts change. And where we are in the fact now, I think these orders are going to be upheld in court. So Attorney General William
1: Barr wrote a memo threatening to sue states if they infringe on people's freedom during the pandemic and encouraging U.S. attorneys to look for cases to bring against the states. How unusual is this?
5: Well, it's not unusual for an attorney general to tell U.S. attorneys to look out for discrimination and fraud and other things that arise out of some sort of emergency event. So, you know, his first directive to look for fraud wasn't surprising. And it wouldn't be surprising if he was saying, you know, hey, listen, be on the lookout for discriminatory actions by lawmakers that they're trying to use the pandemic as an excuse for. Maybe a mayor saying, hey, listen, you know, African Americans are disproportionately affected, so they have to stay home, but no one else does, that sort of thing. But it's very clearly not that. I mean, it's very clearly him saying, listen, people are protesting and saying that they want to restart the economy, and we want to support that effectively. And perhaps who mayors and governors who are standing in the way of that, I think that is highly unusual given the nature of this public health threat. We just haven't seen anything like this before. What DOJ should be doing now is ensuring that there's no discriminatory action going on and ensuring that they put a limit as much as they can on fraud that's happening because of this pandemic. Those are the things that they really should be doing and they should be looking out for nationwide, not trying to encourage people to violate at-home orders or threaten legal action against governors who are doing their best in these really difficult circumstances.
1: DOJ has standing to sue states for the violations of citizens' rights?
5: They can sometimes. I mean, they might get some citizens involved for personal standing reasons, but DOJ typically has the right to enforce the provisions of the federal constitution. So you could see the U.S. attorney filing suits against governors or mayors or whatever the case may be because of violations to the rights of citizens there.
1: Thanks, Jennifer. That's Jennifer Rogers, a lecturer in law at Columbia Law School. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This
0: is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state